Welcome to Mysterious Goings On. I'm Alex Greenwood. You know, I get the privilege of talking to writers from literally all over the globe. And today is no exception because we're going to welcome Andrew Shanahan here. Andrew has been a journalist for over two decades, writing for some of the biggest newspapers in the world. He's based in Britain and he's founded an organization in 2014 called Man V Fat which has since helped over 4 million men around the world to lose weight and get healthy. When he stepped back from Man V Fat, he returned to his first love, writing. He published his first novel, Before and After, in January 2020. It's the story of a man who is trapped inside his home as a pandemic rages outside. And it's accidentally a very 2020 kind of topic, right? But he promises this doesn't mean he has the gift of foresight. Well, we're going to find out all about this novel, and we're going to talk to Andrew Shanahan, who likes to be called Shan, I believe, and we're going to just talk about writing, and we're going to kind of kick some stuff around here. So welcome, Shan, to Mysterious Goings On. Alex, thanks ever so much for talking to me. It's my pleasure. So let me ask you first, now you've, you've written, have you written for The Guardian, I believe? Uh, yeah, so I've um, been a journalist for over 20 years, and I started with The Guardian newspaper, and uh, went on to write for the Times, Daily Mail, um, Telegraph. So a lot of the, the big UK papers, really. Hmm, okay. So, um, you know, you, you probably know how to write. <laughs> You'd think so, wouldn't you? Although I'd <laughs> say that the, just because I've written for the newspapers doesn't necessarily follow that I know how to write. I think if what it would indicate that I've learned is how to write to a deadline and how to turn in... Um, content that is an acceptable quality for an editor. I wouldn't say it necessarily knows, means that I know how to write. Well, I, I would after uh, reading uh, through before and after, I, I, think, I think you do know how to write and write extremely well. Um, I, I want to ask you about before and after. If, do you mind just kind of giving us the, 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 the blurb, the back of the, the oh. book jacket cover? What, 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 what's this book about? So it's about a guy called Ben Stone who weighs 601 pounds and he's what they call a shut-in, which is someone who doesn't leave their house. Um, in Ben's case, it's because he can't physically. Uh, he's too big, literally, to, to leave the house. And also mentally, he's just not capable of you know, contemplating that. And it starts off, the book uh, begins where he's having to be removed from his flat because he needs his leg amputating because he has diabetes. And so the council have come along and taken the front wall of his flat off. He lives on the fourth floor of a block of flats and uh, they're lowering him to the floor by crane. And it's as he's wrapped up and ready to go and sort of just about to be lifted up by the crane that the world ends. And so the, the book is really, that is the, the very start of the book. And the rest of the book is really about him how he got to that point so i mean the, the book takes two views of his life so it's very much before as in um why did he reach the weight that he's reached what happened to him what you know what caused him to to be in this situation and the after is very much about what happens it's it's a sort of a real time you know you see what happens to him both physically mentally and uh, and spiritually probably as well 
I, I see that there's, we're treated to his inner monologue a bit through the book. Sure. Really yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I think that for me, that, that was one of the, the really important things is that I, I'm, I think, you know, I don't know about yourself, sort of the things that you, you like to read personally, but that for, for me, I still see that there's a real homogeneity around heroes and characters and main characters in that they, they tend to just, I think it's getting better gradually in that we're starting to hear voices from different communities, from different perspectives. And for me, that, you know, that, that is just fundamental. It's so important to, to be able to, to find yourself in fiction and to, to see people who look like you, who sound like you. And I don't think that matters, you know, whether it's from a race, gender, sexuality, uh, physical perspective. But for me, it was really important that we actually just had it wasn't just a cosmetic decision that Ben weighs so much. So 601 pounds is kind of 240-ish kilograms or around about sort of 50, 60 stone, depending on where people are listening to this. Um, and, you know, I didn't want that just to be a, a cosmetic decision. Oh, he's a big guy. And then the story unravels. It's, it's about, you know, his weight. It's about the story of his weight, why he reached that weight. Because I think it's a fascinating topic well it's it's literally right in front of us all um yeah especially in the developed world we 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 are not what you would call live thin specimens to, to mostly um i have to ask you this and, and forgive me if it's a really mm -hmm. silly question but is he ben stone because stone is 14 pounds is, or is that just completely a coincidence do you know what? <laughs> there's, there's two reasons why he's named the way he is. One is that, I, I don't know if you'll have seen the film, but have you ever seen Doc Hollywood with Michael J. Fox? Yes, <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah. I, you know, I love that movie. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, I, I really, really do adore that movie. It's, um, and so the character, of Michael J. Fox's character in that film is Ben Stone. And, um, and also the two sort of main characters in the book are Ben, who is obviously the main character and Brown, his dog. And Ben Brown happens to be the name of my cardiologist. <laughs> so there you go. Um, but yes, there is a nice sort of angle in the fact that Stone, I, I suppose there is a, an unwitting pun there as well. Well, we all do it. Well, I blended so, so many people I know read my stuff and they're like, oh my gosh, is that my last name on there? I'm like, yes. <laughs> oh, I'm so overjoyed. I'm so, I'm so honored. I'm like, well, calm down. It's the villain. Um, yeah, exactly. They died. <laughs> but Doc Hollywood, that's one of those films that if I'm, Flipping through, and it's on. I will watch it, uh, particularly because I love Julie Warner, the love interest in there. But anyway, yeah, she's, yeah, I mean, she's absolutely, and, she's and, a delight. Yeah, and it's it's sort of it's such um it was a real surprise for me watching that film. I think when I was growing up, because he was you know the king of I I just when I was younger I assumed that he was in all films. I thought that's what films were. It was Michael J. Fox in every film. <laughs> um, I, I was, it has to be said, a spectacularly stupid child. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't think I've got that much smarter. But the, um, <laughs> the, the thing for me was that he'd done all of these blockbuster, you know, like Back to the Future, um, Secret of My Success, things like that. And then Doc Hollywood came along and it was such a small film. Yeah. And I think he's referenced the fact that it was, you know, it was very much supposed to be like a, is it a Frank Capra um, yeah. style film? And I'd never really seen any of those films before. But for me, it was really fascinating because 
although we lived in the UK, um, it, it, I kind of really understood a little bit more that, oh, wow, so you can actually make a film about somewhere as boring as where I live and, and still have, you know, the, the context of a story there. And I suppose that, in a funny way, that goes back to representation. It was that sort of surprise of representation that, you know, where I lived was just a, a small rural village in the middle of England, you know, entirely anonymous and you know I never thought there was any kind of romance or story to it but I think in some ways that maybe did open my eyes a little bit to the fact that oh you know a story even a a Michael J Fox film can be about something as innocuous as where I live you know the fish out of water too that it's a bit of a trope but but they did this so extraordinarily well this happened in my own life where I moved from not a huge city but a city of about a million people to a town of about 1500 for a mm. job. And I was kind of that same, I had that same vibe. So I think I fell in love with that too. But to your point, Shan, it taught me that um, there, there is interest and there is drama and there is every, it's everywhere there are humans. Um, mm. and, and it's great that, you know, uh, you're, you're modeling that not only with location, but of course, with people who are overweight um, mm. with this character. And I, I do the same thing. I, I have a character in my series who uh, has some severe anxiety issues and some mental illness, not not yeah. like he's criminal or anything, but he has yeah. challenges. And I've had people tell me, wow, the hero of your show, your books has some of the problems I have. And mm. you do it in a way that doesn't mock it, which is yeah. the other thing we're talking about here with Ben Stone. You're Ben Stone. Yeah, and I think that it's always, it's so easy. You know, I mean, it goes back to that age-old writer's advice, doesn't it? Write about what you know and write, you know, just so that it, it's, it's, um, it has that tangibility, it has that reality to it. And because people can reflect on that and they can see it and they can... And so lots of people have read it who obviously aren't as, as heavy as Ben um, or perhaps don't have weight issues at all. But they've said, do you know what? It, it actually made me understand a little bit more about how someone could get to that size and how, um, you know, what the, the psychological impact of that might be. Because I think, especially with weight, as you say, you know, so in the UK, and I think it's the same over in the States, it's, it's seven out of 10 men are either overweight or obese. Yeah, so okay. it always used to make me laugh when people would say, oh, you know, you, you're sort of, you know, man v fat's quite a niche. I was thinking, well, a niche is the sort of, you know, is the narrow part. Actually, what I'm, I'm, I'm on the mass market, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, you know, there are 70% of a market is not a niche. It's, it's the, the whole, pretty much. So I think for, um, you know, it, it, we need that representation and we need to, to understand those perspectives. And, and I think that it's great in fiction when we can do that because we can explore what it's like to be that person without and, and gain greater empathy. Um, without it, it costing us anything, really. Do you mind if we step back for a moment? Because this is part and parcel to your, your book. Uh, so Man V Fat, mm. um, could you just give us a little background on, on how that uh, happened for you? I'm very curious, and I think the listeners will want to know this in relation especially to before and after. Sure. So um, Man V Fat started in 2014. And it was born out of the fact that throughout my life, I've struggled with my weight. I sort of fluctuate wildly from, uh, I think, you know, the, the heaviest I've been is probably about 50 pounds heavier than where I am now. 
Um, and I've probably been about 50 or 60 pounds lighter than where I am now as well. So throughout my life, I've just had this constant oscillation uh, with regards to my weight. And it's my um, problem, if you like, is, is largely because I uh, tend to eat quite compulsively or, or eat not because I'm hungry. So um, I, I don't think it's, it's as problematic as some people have it. Some people have horrific, um, just compulsive eating issues. And I don't think mine's at that point, but I've certainly been through periods of my life where I'm doing a lot of eating, not because I'm hungry. And often that's because of stress. It's because of, you know, I'm eating out uh, or eating through problems. And so in about 2013, I think I was about the heaviest I've been. And I had just sold my previous business and um, which was a, a wedding website. It's a website for, for men who were getting married. So we used to write a lot of speeches for guys and that sort of thing. And uh, I'd sold that business and I was just desperately unhappy with where I was. And so I was really, really trying hard to lose weight. And I struggled a lot because all of the support, the products, the information out there were, were aimed at women. And, you know, looking at it, I just felt it was so strange that this topic was, you know, it was clearly a problem, you know, looking, you could just walk down the high street and see that there were just as many men as women who were overweight. And yet everything was focused on women. And, and clearly, from a gender perspective, that's just so damaging, because women then start to interpret that as right, fat is a female issue, you know, if you are a right. fat woman, that is a bad thing. Whereas if you are a fat man, well, you know, where are the groups to help men? So clearly it's not an issue to be a fat man. And I, I just, um, I felt like I needed support. So I was the one fat bloke at Weight Watchers and Slimming World and all of those groups. And I remember vividly the point where I just thought this is so absurd that there's no support for me is that they were talking in one of the groups and the leader was saying, they, they said, she said, um, Okay, so we're going to look at, um, you know, periods and how periods affect your weight. Um, and, you know, if it's your time of the month, then clearly that's going to cause fluctuation in your weight. And I was thinking, yeah, that's not my problem. <laughs> so, um, and it, so, and just from that point, I thought that there needs to be something. And, and equally, a lot of the things that they were talking about just didn't seem relevant to me. Like they didn't have, they weren't talking about, you know, uh, working so I was working very long hours and I just didn't, I couldn't think, you know, it, it, there was around, there was practicalities around that. So I, I was eat, working through lunch and then by the time I got home, I was starving. So I was just looking for something very, very quick to fill me up. So, and also I was stressed. So I was speed relaxing with beer and crisps and, uh, you know, just getting to the end of the day and going, yeah, that's me done. I'll have a beer. Um, and those were the things that were causing me problem. And I thought there, there might well be a gender issue there. So I started um, a crowdfunding campaign to see if other men out there were interested in male focused support for weight loss. And um, I think about 3000 men joined up during the crowdfunding campaign. Uh, it was supported by people like Jamie Oliver and, um, you know, some big names um, who clearly thought that, you know, that this was, and it, it was, it rolled on from there really. Man V Fat's been a real uh, eye opener. I've learned a lot. Um, I'm not sure I've necessarily learned to control my own weight, but I've certainly learned that I'm not alone in terms of, of struggling with those things. And I also know now 
that because of man v fat there are things that men can turn to so we started a lot of groups we run a scheme in the uk in australia in i think we're launching in america quite soon um called man v fat football which are football leagues so soccer leagues for exclusively for overweight and obese men um but the the sort of twist on them is that all the guys weigh in before they play and if they've lost weight from week to week, then they score bonus goals for their team. So you can be a productive member of your team, even if you don't feel like you can get up and run around, you can lose weight and still score goals. That's fantastic. Thanks. I love that. I love that. Um, can I ask you the, the word fat? You, you obviously have no issue using that word. Now, maybe this is a British American thing here, but here that word is almost taboo. Are you familiar really? with that? Or, or do you? Yeah, I mean, we, we had um, some meetings. So we work with quite a lot of um, big funders now. Uh, so the UK government have started funding us and um, we work with an organization called Sport England. We work with a lot of groups, you know, public health groups who are traditionally very squeamish around anything that might cause offence. And the, the conclusion was, was that actually, you know, even if the funders themselves and the organisations took offence, the individual people didn't see it as, as a taboo word. They understood that whether or not it was a, a very male approach in the sense that they just want, you know, they didn't want to pussyfoot around it and say, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm being, it's almost like just going back the other way, you know, like you can tiptoe around it sensitively, use as many euphemisms as you like, but actually sometimes you just want to go, do you know what? No, I'm just fat. That, that is, you know, the fat is my issue. And if I say that out loud, it sort of dispels some of the, the shibboleths and the sort of the nonsense around that and says, actually, no, do you know what? I I, I need to lose some weight. That is my issue. It's not about um you know anything else i just need to lose some weight yeah and and i i think that what i think people on my side of the pond need to understand about this too is it's like you said fat is a is a very apt descriptor you know you can say i wear fluffy sizes or i'm or or even overweight whatever but let's get down to it you know if you're overweight and by the way i i'm doing all right right now but i've had my ups and downs too nothing you know, to the point where I needed a group, but certainly at a point in my life where I had to start exercising or else, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. you know, you know, I think we all get there. You know, I'm in my fifties now, but in my forties, it was just like 40, two things happened. Well, three things had a kid. I didn't, my wife did. I had a kid. <laughs> uh, my eyesight started to go finally. And I just gained weight by looking at food. So anyway, I, I learned a story, but I think the distinction though here and that people need to get across is the concept of fat shaming Mm. Um, is one. So let me give you an example. Some people I saw on, the, just on Twitter the other day, toxic Twitter. <laughs> Someone made a comment about the president and said he was a fat mm. blankety blank. And somebody got mm. on there and said, I agree. He's a, he's a total jerk, but why do you have to fat shame him in the process? Mm. Sure. And, and so what is your thoughts on that? And just give it, lay it out for me. If you just think that's right, wrong or silly, or what do you think of that well, though? I, I don't think it's silly at all. And I think that, you know, absolutely body shaming for any reason whatsoever is, you know, it's not just um, wrong. It's, it's counterproductive. People sometimes feel like, you know, they can fat shame someone into, oh, come on, man, you're super overweight. You look awful. You know, and, and that they don't understand that that doesn't lead to someone going, do you know what? They're right. I'm going to, you know, do something positive 
actually all it does is it just drags you deeper and lower and and leaves you feeling that you know so it's counterproductive but ultimately you know fat is a is a biological term it, it's not something that we need to to skirt around you know if you speak to a biologist they will tell you that you know underneath your skin there is a fat layer a layer of fat so it, it's there, there is a technical term there that is not a euphemism in and of itself and i think that part of it is you know i think you could draw analogies with the the sort of the approach to the word queer and about how people have reclaimed that word yeah. and the people within that group have reclaimed the word queer and said actually no i identify in this way and and it speaks of something to my identity now i think it's different because clearly we're talking about fat as being something non-ideal and and that's not true of, of people who are using the word queer but i think that you can say to people you know if you had to describe yourself what would you think is the most accurate term and i think for the men who are engaged with man v fat i think that if you say you know and the name itself obviously puts it in a very pragmatic system it is yeah. me versus my problem it is me versus fat and the second you start sort of distancing yourself from your problem through using euphemisms and saying it's me versus you know fluffy sizes i think was the one you used yeah, yeah. you know it, it weakens the the battle it weakens the the journey and and the the target and the purpose of what you're doing if you can state your target and your mission in as simple a terminology as possible, then I think that's very powerful. And especially if I'm doing it for myself. So, you know, I, you would have to speak to some of the guys on, on the, the scheme, but you know, I, I don't, I think since we launched, I don't think we've ever had anyone say from within the scheme, this is offensive. I wish it was called something else. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's because they all identify as fat and all identify that what they want is to create this man v fat situation for themselves. Exactly. And I think it's incumbent upon writers, whether you're a fiction writer, journalist, or nonfiction, yeah. whatever you're writing, it's incumbent upon us, I think, particularly in a uh, sadly post-fact world, to yeah. perhaps not dilly-dally around with the language too much, because I yeah. think we're seeing so many examples where um, uh, People are not saying what they mean mm. and, and, and obviously not meaning what they say. Mm. And so I, so I pardon my, uh, if you will, pardon my cul-de-sac there, but I, I had to ask <laughs> you about that. Uh, no, because I, I agree. I think it's a fascinating topic and I think that you're right. It's, it's something that's fundamental to the process of writing. And, and I, it's something that I've thought about deeply, not only from the man v fat point of view, but also, you know, I mean, as, as, as someone uh, English. Of course, I worry about offence at every single step of the turn. I wake up sweating at night, wondering if I said uh, sorry to people enough today. And if not, I break out into the streets and apologise randomly. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. No, I'm so sorry. Oh, gosh, I am sorry. So sorry. Um, and I am a compulsive apologiser. But you, you're absolutely right. I think where writers is incumbent on us to be brave is in our use of language and in, in our quest of, you know, of course we have to be sensitive to, are we being offensive? But equally, we have to be brave in at least asking those questions. So a situation arose recently where 
the the next book that I'm writing on, a character has cerebral palsy. Oh. And I was speaking to um, some of the, the uh, organizations in the UK, Scope in particular, who are very, very good. And they sort of represent um, cerebral palsy, people with cerebral palsy and uh, children with cerebral palsy. And I, I sort of really had to wrestle with this. Am I in some way you know, being a tourist in this world. And is that a right, the right thing to do? You know, similar to the situation with yourself and the, the mental health aspects that that character has, you know, you have to make sure that there's a reason for why you're doing that. But then I also think it's, you have to be brave as well and say, no, you know, I, I am going to use that, that character and I am going to say something valid um, even if I don't have cerebral palsy myself, I think it's still a reasonable thing. You know, we are engaged in fiction. We are allowed to imagine. There's so many uh, branches to that tree, which we, I wish we could get into. But it's it's also, it also gets to me, there's a branch that goes to where actors are now being criticized if they're playing a role that they don't actually inhabit in real life. Mm. I can see some of the points there, but a lot of the points I'm, I, when, you know, this is, we're talking about art here. We're talking about a, a different direction, but I, I know we don't have time for that. So I want to do, I do want to get back to before and after before you say Alex word after and this, this interview is over, I'm leaving. Um, <laughs> let's get back, let's get back to that book then. How long did, I, I want to ask the, the nuts and bolts questions that I ask all writers. Well, how long did it take you to write the book from conception to published? So I think, as I said, one of the things that journalism taught me was to to be fairly proficient at writing um, as a as a profession, as a having deadlines and that sort of thing. And so I think I started in July of 2019, and I think the third draft was finished in October. So it's it's about eighty thousand words. So I think I the first one took probably a um, month and a half to write. And then myself, my wife, and uh, my two boys read it. Um, and between us, we, we came up with the fact that I'd just got the, the last third of the book completely wrong. Um, and so I, it was, but then it was quite a, it, it wasn't necessarily an easy fix, but it, it was really apparent that it was an interesting book. Um, it's just that what I'd done was I tried to, it sort of felt like I'd grafted on an action film at the end and it, it went slightly absurd. And I think what's really useful about that, that stage of where you, you come on back to a first draft mm -hmm. is the, the flaws in it are so magnified and instantly you can say, good grief, what on earth was I thinking? <laughs> um, and that's great fun because you can then go fab. You know, one of the joys of writing is deleting. <laughs> Absolutely, it is. I, I love I love the first draft, and I put it away for a few weeks. You know, I, I don't know if you do this, but I have to. I have to put it in the drawer for a couple of weeks and come oh, back yeah. to it with fresh eyes. And I love I cringe half of it, well, and then I, yeah. I enjoy part of it. Um, and every now and then I'll, I'll circle something and put an exclamation point by it. It's the only time I print anything out, by the way, is that usually after that first draft and when I go over yeah. it, um, the rest of the time my editor handles it for me. But I, I do love that part of the process as well. Um, isn't that a satisfaction thing as well of, of like having the printout of the book? Yeah. Of just sort of tangibly be existing in the real world and you being able to slam it on a desk and go, yes, it's there. <laughs> there is <laughs> It's substantial, you know, yeah. it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, you, you know, it's like funny. I, 
I'm doing this. Nobody can see it, the listeners, but I'm holding up a laptop. I can't slap this laptop on the desk no. once or twice. <laughs> and it doesn't make any kind of, uh, you know, it doesn't make you feel good whatsoever if you just look at a file size of a document and go, whoa, 430K. Look at that. Look at those zeros and ones piling <laughs> up there. You know, you know, that's great. Okay, so you, uh, you, did you publish this independently or did you yeah. shop it or how did, how did that go? So I have an agent. I've published before. So I've published um, three books of nonfiction before, um, one connected with Man Be Fat and a couple of others. And I've uh, done some ghostwriting in the past and that sort of thing. Um, and so I'd worked with publishers quite a lot before. And I knew that if I ever got the opportunity, I would like to do something without publishers. As much as I love publishers and I think that they do a great job, I think that my experience has been that in a post bookshop world and i don't want anyone to scream when i say post bookshop world you know it's just a fact of sales that so many more books are sold online as ebooks these days and as print on demand or however they're delivered via amazon that it's it's a reality that that fiction writers have to um, adapt to and and ideally go with so I, I kind of, the, the whole thing with publishers to me seemed to be that they had it locked up in terms of getting books into bookshops. Yeah. And, you know, and printing at volume um, and distributing those books. And now it sort of seems, although I love the, the physical product of a book, it seems a little bit absurd. Um, and I know that people are fetishizing them as objects now and, yeah. and you know, there are, there are blogs devoted to how beautiful books are. And, and, you know, I can get that and I agree, but equally, I know that that's not where the business model is. Um, certainly for me, certainly for, you know, for bookshops, basically. I mean, uh, I, I'm sure people will point me towards fantastically uh, profitable bookshops, but I know that that's not the truth for, for a lot of them. And so I, I wanted to, to do this independently and, I was also really looking forward to having full editorial control because I'm a total control freak. And um, I worked with an editor because I'm not insane. Um, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> yeah. something that hasn't been edited. Um, so I worked with an editor who sort of hates me, which I think is a really healthy relationship. <laughs> to have I think it's always a little bit dangerous when you know, you're working with an editor who's a little bit enthralled to you and thinks that you're great. I, I think you have to have someone who's, and the editor for this book um, is someone I know and have known for a long time. And I would say that she's a friend, but I don't think she thinks I'm much cop as a writer. <laughs> and that's fine. Yeah. That works well. I have the same thing. My, my, uh, my editor, he's a professional editor, um, mm. but I've known him since high school. Um, he, he is not afraid to tell me this is crap. <laughs> and I'll say, what part? And he'll say, all of it. Yeah. The words. The two covers. Is that an old Black Adder uh, line? Though? Like, uh, there's something needs work here. What would that be? The words. <laughs> so I think... Um, well, I, so you 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 put this out in January before there actually was full world knowledge of this pandemic. Yeah. And it's so it's so interesting and and, and amusing in a, in a black way that this mm. this thing is about this. So how would you? And forgive me if you don't uh, don't want to do this, but I'm going to ask the question anyway because I'm a former journalist. How would you? How would you? 
classify the book? Is it science fiction? Is it horror? Is it humor? Yeah, what is it? Um, yeah, all, all of the above. Um, I think the, the issue is, is that, you know, that there are elements, I think more and more I've come to think of it a little bit as, as sort of body horror. Um, yeah. Just this sort of area of, of horror. And, and do you know what? It's, it's not something that I would necessarily think to write because I'm incredibly squeamish. And especially with, you know, reading horror books, I, I would run a mile. Um, it's, it would terrify me. But equally, I think that it is set, it is broadly within the post-apocalyptic uh, fiction category. Um, it is a science fiction book in the sense that, uh, well, I suppose, or speculative fiction in that it's it's positing a what if this happened type uh, question. And um, yeah, I think there was a really good review from an organization called the British Obesity Society who read it and um, <laughs> it was quite a surprise, but they, they gave it an absolutely glowing review because they said, you know, um, I can't remember the exact quote, but they said that this is a horror story. And the, the worst part of it is that so much of it is true. And I thought that was a really insightful comment because they're absolutely right. It is, you know, the, the horror of the book, certainly half of the book is about Ben and his, uh, you know, how he has lost control of his body and how he has lost the ability to connect with his body and to have a good relationship with his body. And I think that that has been a really interesting thing to, to, to write because it's not something I've necessarily seen before. It, it's about a man who is, uh, you know, hugely overweight and who struggles with that. And, and I think some of the, the bits that I, that when I was writing them, I really thought, you know, um, were very emotional and and difficult to to write let alone read were the moments where people were just so callous about his weight yeah. and i know that you know i obviously through running man v fat i've interviewed um probably thousands of men who are overweight and some of whom have done an incredible job of losing weight and uh, some of whom are still struggling with their weight. So, you know, I, I feel like I have a really good insight into that, that psychology. And so there's a, a point in the book where Ben is just in a supermarket picking something up for his mum, And uh, a woman comes over and starts telling him how he can lose weight and what he needs to be buying to lose weight. And, he, you know, he was buying something for his mum. But and, and I feel like that sort of that public ownership of overweight bodies yeah, they are something that people are allowed to comment on, or that you know it is in the public domain. Um, it's is really chilling, you know, because we all should have that right to privacy and to, and if we want to anonymity. And I think that in a lot of ways, that's what drives Ben to to being a shut in is that the only way he can guarantee that privacy is through not going out. And for me, I feel desperately empathetic and sad for people in that that situation because I, I just am aware of that desperate want for privacy and that desperate want for just to be able to live your life without other people having an opinion on you and your size well to be judged by people sure, exactly uh, just it's huge and that's at the being judged is at the root of a lot of anxiety disorders by the way uh, yeah 
people get anxiety because they fear they're being judged. Or uh, if I turn in this assignment at work, I, I, I can't turn it in because I fear I'll be judged negatively mm. for it. You see, there, that, so that's, there's, a, there's a connector, I think, there mm. between the world you're writing about and the world I write about yeah. um, with the judgment. Um, and our, I know we've got just a few moments left here, and I've so enjoyed this, Shan. You are just a delight to, to speak with about all of these things. Yes, I am. Um, uh, you, you really are. Um, I, and I'm, I'm, I'll take that five or later, but seriously. Um, you know, if, if we could, if I could, I'd love it if you could just uh, maybe give a word to our writer listeners out there who are Ooh. working on their first book. This sounds like this has been a tremendously rewarding experience for you, and you're writing another one. Ooh. Any, 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 you know, words of buck up for people out there trying to get through it, especially in November, the National Novel Writing Month? Yes, exactly. Well, I will also point out that it's uh, no, not November as well. So I don't know if, if that psychologically there's a connection between those two things. <laughs> um, I'll allow you to explain that concept. <laughs> um, so the, I would say, um, so there's, there's two pieces of advice that I would pass on. And this is done on the proviso that people don't assume that this means that I've cracked it in any way, shape or form, because I fantastically have not. Um, the, the strong advice I always return to is don't get it right, get it written. And that I think is, is a very neatly encapsulated piece of advice about, you know, you uh, referenced your first draft and which then the way you referenced it made me think that you don't actually struggle to, to do first drafts. Is that fair? Um, I'm on my eighth book and uh, that first draft for that first book took me two years. Um, okay. But my second, third, fourth books, they came really fast. And then the fifth, yeah. and then lately it's like pulling teeth. So I don't know. Yeah. I'm not typical in, either, in any way, I don't think. So you've, you've experienced different sides of it because I think, uh, you know, like I say, I, I can um, approach things in quite a professional way of saying, look, you, you've just got to get 80,000 words done. You've got this length of time to do it get on with it. Um, And so I'm pretty, I hear that voice in my head and I do it. So I I think there was um, Frank Cottrell Boyce was writing the other day on um, Twitter and he was saying who did billions and uh, I'm going to forget all the rest of his books. But anyway, he, um, he had a great phrase, which was slap it down. You know, that first draft, slap it down. Don't, don't preempt yourself. Don't double think. Yeah. Don't, you know, cause you will, you're, as you are writing and thinking this is pretty good, there is another part of your brain going, this is ineffable shit. Absolutely. And, you know, and the, 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 perhaps the one skill that a writer has is being able to have a brain that has both of those voices at top volume in their head and not explode. I, I think that that's probably, you know, as long as you understand that every other writer is like that, I think that that is a really healthy thing to do you will have one voice in your head going, hey, you know, th- th- it might even be tiny, saying, this is, this is all right. This is, you know, you're, you're putting one word next to the other. Um, well done. And then you will have like just giant voices in your head going, yes, but what's the point? I mean, come on, you utter turd. This is, stupid. <laughs> you know, and, and all of those things are, you know, that is, I think I'm sure this is why so many writers listen to music as they write. It's just to try yep. and drown out that those voices and just, you know, so anyway, slap it down, get it done. Because actually, as you say, as you go back and review, 
you go, oh yeah, both of those guys are right, actually. <laughs> some of this is really good and some of it's awful, but actually I can see which bits are awful and maybe I can give the, the guy who writes the good stuff an opportunity to, to fill in those bits now. Um, so that, that's, get it written. Don't get it right, get it written. And the other thing um, I would say is just do it. You know, it's, it's so, I, I think people get so caught up about sales and, you know, I mean, if, if we're indie authors, surely, I mean, we have to acknowledge the fact that this is a phenomenally unlikely thing to result in money. I mean, yes, of course, that should still be a credible um, target for you. But equally, don't write for that purpose. Write because you want to express something. Write because you, you can't quite find the story that you want to read. Um, you know, write because it makes you happy. And sometimes when you're listening to that tiny voice saying, this is okay, that makes you feel good. You know, any of those reasons, and just for expression, you know, just, just because you can't find a book with the character who you want to see, that is a good reason to write. And just get it done, get it out there. And I think that is a, a really healthy approach um, to, and, and don't worry about reviews and all, any of those perspectives, just worry about you expressing yourself. I think that is um, a really, truly beautiful thing to do. Where were you 10 or 11 years ago when I was writing my first <laughs> book, Shan? I mean, you know what? My, back to judgment. I was so afraid of being judged uh, about yeah. my books. And even now, it's like sometimes you, you, somebody says, oh, I want to read your book. And I, oh, I've had to work on this. And sometimes I'll actually, you talk about apologizing. I'm, I'd be like, sorry in advance for how crappy this book is going to be. Here you are. Um, feel free to use it if you run out of toilet paper in the pandemic. <laughs> What the hell am I doing? I, but I have a friend, a very dear friend who listens to this show. And I'm going to paraphrase this. She's a great reader. She can write as well, but she's a great reader and a great booster of, of uh, authors. Mm. In fact, she often retweets guests on this show. Thank you so much. She Thank told you. me, she said, you know, or she said, authors who downmouth their own work, particularly in mm. public, are unintentionally insulting the readers who do like their work. Yeah, damn it. That's true. Yeah. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. That's what I needed to hear for years because I, my own insecurity and I've, I've had some nice mentions, some awards, things like that. I have not sold millions of copies, but then, but then when like you bring out a book, like, like I have in a series and then it, and it, and it just all you hear after you, you, you publish it is, boom, fall, you know, it just falls apart. Nothing happens. Nobody, hardly anybody buys it. And you're like, why did I do it? Well, what I'm going to do after I release this next one, I'm going to go back to this interview. Yeah. And I'm going to listen to what you just said about all that stuff, because you're exactly right. You really are. But I mean, you know, this, this is what I was, that hence my caveat at the beginning of that, because I'm still, so I'm probably 25, 30-ish thousand words into uh, this new book. And I, I, I have been in this situation, you know, so surely I should be able to process my own advice i should be going stop thinking just write but equally i'm you know utterly i mean obviously i've got the bloody pandemic to be able to blame this all on and go oh well you know we're all on furlough and it's it's difficult to to actually find the time but that's just this nonsense really i could be writing two three thousand words a day easily and i'm not well i'm not either and i actually that was one of my last wrap-up questions you've already uh, I've had a tremendously difficult time simply because, and I, 
And for a while there, I kicked myself and said, you're making excuses. And perhaps I am, but I have lost the focus. Yeah. I just find I'm, of course, I've had two, two, two big competing things. One, the pandemic and hoping everybody stays safe around me and, and all that. The other being the U.S. elections, which have been preyed on me. So I have just felt I've had so little energy. And I also, and this is funny because I've had writer friends who say, well, you should go write as an escape. And I felt like that's an indulgence, I guess, which is wrong. Yeah. I think that's totally wrong. I'm wrong. I think I should have been writing and I will. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, I, I'm, I, I hear all of that, you know, including the US election. And even though, you know, I'm um, a Brit, it's, it's, it's sort of sucked us all in. And, and I think you said toxic Twitter earlier, and you're absolutely right. I've, I've come off and deactivated my Twitter account like nine times this month because I just feel myself being pulled into that vortex of, of hate um, and, and self-loathing and think, oh, yeah, but it's good for scrolling. Um, and I think instantly, I think doom scrolling might be the word of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. But the, um, yeah, I agree. It's, it's about focus, but I think it's also about the, the psychic energy that we all have, you know, I mean, regardless of whether you believe in psychic ability or anything, but you know, the, the energy of the psyche, the, the brain power that you have at your command and so much of that, I think we have frittered on social media, US elections, pandemic. And, and so maybe we should be kinder to ourselves and say, okay, well, let, let's, let's say this vaccine. And, you know, I thought it was hilarious, the fact that the vaccine and Trump's uh, defeat came within a few days of each other, because you're sort of thinking, you know, maybe this is sort of the start of a healing process. Um, apologies if you're, you know, politics lie in a different direction. But it's just that sense of at least there is, you know, a resolution because I think regardless of whether you're Republican or Democrat, I don't think many Republicans enjoyed the the process of a Trump presidency because it was just so caustic. Um, and I think, you know, just the idea of a boring four years under Biden is just, yeah. and sounds glorious, doesn't it? Well, as I've said repeatedly on Twitter, I said, I just fantasize about a day when I don't have to worry about what the latest thing is going to come out of the White House. I, I just want competence. I just want somebody to, to handle that because I would like to, as, uh, as Voltaire said, I would like to tend to my own garden. I would like yeah. to make things well in my area and not worry about is Washington DC going to explode because of some yeah. ridiculousness. So there's that. And, 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 and I'm probably more effective at help protecting my family and myself from COVID. If I'm, if I'm thinking, okay, the people at the top are also working to that same goal, but I, we didn't mean to get political folks. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, if you, if you're a long time listener to the show, come on, you know, you know where I am on this. Um, <laughs> Andrew Shanahan, uh, where can people find you that they want to, and I'm sure they do want to learn more and, and follow you you and, and keep up with you in your new book sure um so primarily um if you go to a website called hello shan so h-e-l-l-o-s-h-a-n.co.uk that's my blog and i am trying to be much more diligent about updating that more so than my social media feed so which i will snootily give a miss to here so have a look at the blog um, and if you want to have a look at the book then uh, you can go to helpbiscuits.com H-E-L-P-B-I-S-C-U-I-T-S.com. And that should take you to the Amazon store in your geographic region. And uh, I think it's, it's ludicrously cheap at the moment. I think it's 99p for the ebook, And uh, obviously you can read the sample. And I, I, my, my estimation is, is that if you read the sample, then you might be, you might think 
this is 99p, not wasted. I would tend to agree. Andrew <laughs> Shanahan, you, you have blessed us all with a wonderful, uh, almost an hour of conversation and insight. And I so thank you for appearing here on Mysterious Goings On. You're very welcome, Alex. And it wouldn't be uh, English if I didn't finish by apologizing. So <laughs> you know, I don't know if I've laughed out loud this much in a, in, a, in, a, in a little while. Maybe not since election night. But anyway, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, remember, if you want to find those links, don't worry about scribbling them down. You can find them in the show notes at mgopod.com, where you can also find an archive of literally five years worth of interviews and my monologues and hey you're going to want to read about my kidney stone adventures right i'm having one right now so be sure to look that one up while you're in there but again andrew shanahan uh writer and advocate for men to get as healthy as they can be what a tremendous guest thanks again again mgeopod.com for all the links etc etc and until next time keep reading